Well, good Sunday, South Valley Community Church. We start a new series entitled Lessons from the Early Church, and we're going to start off this week at the beginning of the book of Acts with an event that is simultaneously one of the most significant but neglected events in all of Scripture. That event is the Ascension. And it starts right at the beginning of the book of Acts, and there's a number of reasons why this event is neglected. But first, if we're being honest with ourselves, one of the reasons is just it's sort of a bit weird. I mean, it it, it kind of seems like the way a a fairy tale would end. Jesus has resurrected. He's been, been teaching the disciples. He's been making appearances. And then after 40 days, the text says he just kind of begins to go up into heaven, and then a cloud appears, and he's gone. And it's sort of like this weird scene where it's like Jesus flying, and then his disciples are wondering where he went. So it's just sort of weird, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's neglected. But once you understand the the narratival landscape that this event, the ascension, takes place in, you understand the images that are being used, the story will find its place and begin to make more sense. So let's dig in. We're in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Jesus has been making his appearances. He's been teaching. And the disciples gather around and it records this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And it's sort of this weird question, but you can get it if you understand the context of the disciples. I mean, they've seen their leader, their teacher, their Lord crucified and then come back from the dead. He's back to life. So their question, being a group of people who have experienced oppression at the hands of the Roman Empire, they're going like, is now the time? Is, is now the time when we're finally going to restore Israel? And we don't know for sure their motives, but there's, there's a strong chance that some of them are at least wondering. I mean, I would be wondering, are, is, are we going to take the Romans out now? Do, are we going to rise up? I mean, clearly, your Lord, you, you've got power, man. So is now the time? And Jesus doesn't give them a response, but in his lack of response, there actually is a a response that's answering their question and a whole lot more. So they say, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom at this time? And then Jesus says, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So his first answer is like, it's not for you to know the times. But then he also adds, you're going to be sent on a mission, not just to Israel, not just to Judea and Samaria, but all the way to the ends of the earth. And what Jesus is doing is he's he's expanding their vision, their question. The heart of it was rooted in the restoration of Israel, their people. But Jesus is expanding their vision, saying, hey, look, what is about to occur is something that is is greater than just this small pocket of land. It includes Judea, Samaria, includes the whole earth. And this, of course, brings us all the way back to the original promises to begin with. Remember, Israel began when God made a promise to Abraham. And in the Abrahamic promise and covenant embedded is this idea that Israel was going to bless all the nations, all the families of the earth. So in this, you are not only seeing God be faithful to Israel, but then the the fulfillment of these promises to bless all the nations. So Jesus is reorienting them. He is expanding their envision to include the whole world. And he says specifically that they will receive power and be his witness. 
Greek word for power here is dunamis, and it means strength or the ability to do something. But the more significant component of this is this was often used, this word, in relationship to the miracles of Jesus. And so there is this sense that God is going to send his spirit and the disciples will have a dunamis-like power that will accomplish much for the kingdom. And then they're going to be his witness. Greek here is martus. And this word is significant because it'll continue all throughout the book of Acts. It's this idea that followers of Jesus are called to bear witness to the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus and what Jesus has done in their life. Now that word martus might sound familiar because eventually we get the English word martyr for it. And because historically, as Christians gave witness to the resurrection, many of them would end up laying down their life bearing witness. And so it means literally just to give testimony or to bear witness. But historically, because so many Christians died for their faith, the word began to take on other meanings. And and 2,000 years later, martyr means someone who is giving witness who ultimately dies for their faith. Okay, It goes on, verse 9. And this is the, the specific part, the ascension, the main event. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. It's like, what in the world is going on here? It's just like Jesus just starts to, to fly, and then there's this cloud, and then the disciples want to see Jesus, but somehow he disappeared behind the cloud, and now they're left wondering, like, what's going on? You have to think in the images here. When you think of clouds in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, when, when do you see clouds appear? What's significant about the image of cloud? You might recall Sinai. You might recall the tabernacle. And when you think about those events, you think about the presence of God. But there's also a very important vision that takes place in the book of Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter 7, that uses this image of the cloud. And it's something that's being specifically adopted in this portion of Acts. So turn with me to Daniel 7. And in this part of of the book of Daniel, Daniel is receiving a vision and he sees all these beasts and the beast represents empires, people who who have power and who are running and ruling the world, oftentimes in, in oppressive and evil ways. And then it says that Daniel sees someone like a son of man approaching. Now question, what's, what's Jesus' most favorite title for himself in the gospel accounts? What does he use to refer to himself most? He loves using the title son of man. And so in Daniel 7, it says this, And suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven, He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. This will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So it's the image. There's a son of man coming, and he comes with the clouds, and then he is being given dominion and a kingdom, and it's going to be for all nations. So you see that the similar themes taking place here. What Daniel 7 is depicting is the installation of a king, specifically this son of man figure, and the son of man has the image of the cloud. So when we see Jesus ascending in the book of Acts, and then the cloud coming, these images are communicating something, and the biblical writers knew exactly what they were doing here. 
See, in one sense, Jesus is returning from where he came. Remember the incarnation, Jesus leaves heaven and he comes to earth and then he comes to earth to be a servant and then he comes to be a servant to die and then to die on a cross and then go into death itself. So Jesus has to go to the lowest of low, but in the ascent, the direction is back up. So just as Jesus went to the lowest of low in death itself, now he's ascending to the highest of heavens. But on top of that, it's the image of the installation of a king. And this is what Daniel 7 is about. See, Jesus in his earthly ministry, he was already designated and appointed as king. It wasn't as if he was not king. He was designated and appointed and he already had authority. But in the ascension, you are seeing the installation of that king. Jesus is taking to his throne room and sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now, that theme plays out in many of our our favorite stories. It's a symbolic event in many of our stories, and it's an important event. So think um, something as simple as the Lion King. Simba is the designated and appointed king. He's the rightful heir, but he has to come to, you know, Pride Rock, defeat his enemies, defeat Scar. And then at the end of the movie, what's one of the last scenes you see? He has to ascend the rock and then give his big roar and all the kind of kingdom bows before him. That's the installation of the king, even though he was already appointed and designated. In Lord of the Rings, you have Aragorn, who is the rightful king, but it's not till the end of the movie when he's at the top of that mountain in his castle that you see him enthroned as king. Or even in in, uh, the movie Hook, which is a, a Peter Pan movie, you have Um, The Peter Pan character, he doesn't know that he's really Peter Pan. He doesn't know how to fly. He doesn't know how to do anything. But he rediscovers those things. And in that movie, as he rediscovers his true identity, he begins to fly. He ascends. And then ultimately, one of the characters named Rufio bows before him and gives him the sword. And then the Peter Pan character crows and all the lost boys cheer. And And at that moment... He is now being installed sort of as the rightful Peter Pan and the leader of the Lost Boys. And we could go on and on with examples from movies, but we play this out. Someone has been designated and appointed, but the installation is yet to occur. And in the scriptures here, we now see Jesus, the appointed and designated rightful king, take up his seat at the right hand of the Father. And it invokes the Daniel 7 imagery of the Son of Man receiving dominion over all nations. Now, this leads us to one of the other reasons why the ascension is neglected. And this one's a little bit more sinister than the first, I think. See, in one sense, we just kind of don't know what to do with this passage because it's a little weird for modern people. But the other reason that I think it's neglected is the ascension is screaming, king, 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 king. It's all about the kingship of Jesus. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't want a king. We want to be the king of our own lives. And so even sometimes the language that we use, even in in Christian circles, we adopt language that isn't king-like. So I remember years ago hearing someone talk about Jesus being like a co-pilot. He's, you know, the co-pilot and he's, he's there by your side and you're kind of doing life together. But it's almost like as if there's there's you're equally both pilots. There's not a level of authority and kingship given to him. Or even in this language, we we talk about Jesus being our friend. Now, is it wrong to refer to Jesus as your friend? No, I don't think so. Jesus talks about his disciples being his friends. However, 
First and foremost, before Jesus is our friend, he is our king in whom all authority rests. And if he's king, it's sort of like he says jump, we say how high. We're called to submit our lives to him. He's not just a co-pilot or one of our friends. He's our king and we obey and we submit to him. And everything leading up to the ascension is, is also screaming, king, king, king. This is everywhere in the text. So before Jesus is crucified, what's the question he's asked? Are you a king? And then when he's handed over to be crucified, what occurs right before that? They give him a robe that says king. They put a crown on him. That says king. They put a reed in his right hand. That's the image of the scepter. That says king. What's on top of the cross? King of the Jews. And how is it written? In three languages, Greek, Aramaic, and Latin, so that the whole world knows. King, king, king. Everything is saying Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And that ultimately climaxes in the event of the ascension where he sits down on his throne and begins to rule and reign with all authority. I mean, this is powerful, powerful images. This leads specifically to the rest of sort of the theme of the book of Acts. It's the mission, the mission of the church. And why is there a mission of the church? Because we have a king who has given orders and the orders are, go into Judea, Samaria. You're going to be my witness to the ends of the earth. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, to all the nations, teaching them, discipling them, baptizing them. So the church has a mission precisely because the church has a king who has given us this. Now, from a historical perspective, this mission would be impossible. It would be impossible. This is starting off with 12 disciples few followers of Jesus. And he's like, go to the ends of the world and you're going to spread the kingdom of God wherever you go. It's like, that's, this is going to die out in a generation. This is going to die out in a single generation. There's no way this is going to last. But the king also sends the church power through the spirit to be his witness. And what has taken place historically? What has taken place historically? For 2,000 years, the church has marched on it's an unstoppable force, not because the church is filled with just amazing people left and right. It's because the church is empowered by the King's Spirit. And this is, this is our task. This is what we are here for, to be about our King's business. The mission would fail, but we receive power from on high because the King is sitting at the right hand of the Father and sends us His Spirit. And we see this absolutely play out historically. The unthinkable occurs. The church starts 2,000 years ago, and it's been spreading ever since. So I want to ask you a few questions as, as we close relating to the kingship of Jesus and the mission of the church. First, how do you view Jesus? I mean, what comes to mind when you think of Jesus? And I say that because... Um, you may think first and foremost in categories of like co-pilot or friend. And again, there's a sense in which friend is true, and there's a sense in which some of these lesser images can be true, but you have to first and foremost see Jesus as king. He is your king, and he's the king of kings, and he's coming back in power and glory to judge the earth. And then secondly, as you think about how do you view Jesus, now ask yourself, are you in submission to Jesus? 
Are you saying, I'm not just viewing you as a friend in which we can discuss what I ought to do with my life, but I'm coming to you and saying, Lord, what would you have me do? What does your word tell me to do? And am I submitting to it? Am I doing my best to submit and put myself under your authority? And then lastly, and this flows from this understanding of the gospel and the kingship of Jesus, are we about his mission? Jesus says, go therefore, are we about that mission? And we need to be that as a church and then as individuals. And the number one way we do that, it seems so bizarre and so simple, uh, but yet it could be so complicated. Jesus says, be my witness. Be my witness. You are to tell of Jesus. And as you do that, the power of that message is not in your words. It's in the power of the Spirit. So we are just called to be faithful and give witness to the truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and to tell the world what Jesus has done for you. And so from this first lesson from the early church, it kind of sets the tone for the rest of the book of Acts and certainly for our series. Christ is King, and He's given the church a mission. And are we on that mission with Him? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks today, and we give you thanks every day. We are grateful people. We are thankful people. We thank you that you just didn't give us, you just solely give us a mission, but you empowered us for it. And the evidence of this empowerment is, is made clear in 2,000 years of, of history. And so we ask that we would continue to do this, that we would be faithful to your son, our king, and faithful to the mission that he's given us, Lord. We thank you for everything you're doing through us. Continue to be faithful to us, and, and we pray that we will continue to be faithful to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.